0: I'm Jeff Ebert, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. And I just want to say Happy New Year. Hope you're getting off to a good start in 2023. I've got new knees for this year. As many of you know, I had a double knee replacement surgery in December before Christmas, and I'm still trying to get my knees to function. It's a little bit like learning to walk all over again, but I do have my Frankenstein lurch from side to side uh, down pat. I can imitate him uh, pretty well, but hopefully that's going to go smoothly. Thanks so much again for everybody's prayers and your comments and uh, notes and texts and things of encouragement. Really appreciated that. Helped me through some rough spots. So keep your prayers going, especially as I move now into more of the physical therapy uh, side of things. But we're also into a new season of Gospel Wabi Sabi. This is season three now, uh, episode one, entitled Singing the Blues, and it's beginning our series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we're going to be in chapter one, verses one through eleven, if you want to turn there and kind of get yourself ready. Uh, And to do so, I also want you just to imagine for a moment that you're entering like a worship service or some kind of a leadership conference or seminar, and there are 999 other people there. On the way into the seminar or worship service, each person received one piece of a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. And as the meeting begins, the leader up front asks everyone to hold up their puzzle piece. And, you know, as everybody does that, then the leader says, now, I want you to get up out of your seat, find someone who has a puzzle piece that will connect with yours. And then the two of you keep searching and link up with two others that link together. And then four more until you've put the entire puzzle together. Well, mayhem would ensue, total chaos. I mean, how crazy would it be to find even one single person with a connecting piece? I mean, it's basically impossible to put a puzzle together that way, especially when you don't even know what the puzzle is a picture of. You can't get a feel for the big picture just by looking at your one small piece. Now, folks, I'm afraid it's often the way people approach the study of the Bible, People may have one or two pieces that they know very well, one or two favorite passages from the Bible that they love and that they remember. Maybe they have even have a few sections of the Bible that have meant something special to them or have been a source of inspiration or comfort to them. Maybe it's a psalm or a passage from the Gospels or a chapter from one of Paul's letters or the love chapter. Everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13 you know, because they've all heard it at weddings. But that's about it. One of the great challenges I think we face in the church is to help people understand the whole of what the Bible teaches, not just a few isolated passages. When people only know a little bitty bit of the Bible, it can lead to all kinds of false interpretations and even gross misunderstandings. It's like listening to people in the media try to talk about the Bible. Their ignorance is just astounding. The misinformation is amazing. It makes me just want to pull my hair out. When it comes to the Bible, a little knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. Now, the main things that help a person grow deeper in their faith in Christ are prayer and the study of the Bible. But the lack of biblical depth in most Christian churches is really frightening. Uh, A number of years ago now, I had lunch with another pastor in the area where I used to live in New Jersey, and he was sincerely asking for my help on how to start a Bible study in his church. And I was a little confused because As it turned out, in his congregation of 400 people or so, there wasn't one single Bible study going on, not one. And as we talked, it came out that kind of made matters even worse. He had never led a small group Bible study in his entire life. I mean, this is a guy who's been a pastor for at least 15 years. I mean, I was leading Bible studies when I was a senior in high school. You know, many churches are declining simply because they've ignored the basics like a commitment to helping people read, understand, and apply the teachings of the Bible to their lives. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, if you remember, he was the one who opposed Hitler and was eventually hanged for it. Uh, Bonhoeffer once wrote, and I quote, The revival of church life always brings in its train a richer understanding of the scriptures, unquote. If we ever hope to see growing, thriving churches filled with growing, thriving Christians, We have to help people get serious about studying and understanding and then living what the Bible teaches. Now, this isn't anything new. The early disciples of Jesus emphasized repeatedly the importance of helping people understand the whole of God's word. The Apostle Paul, in his farewell address to the church in Ephesus, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 20, he said, For for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. The whole council, not just a couple of pieces, not just the easy parts, but the whole picture. We need to remember that the Bible is many stories that come together to tell one larger story, God's plan of salvation. But it's many stories that combine to tell God's big story. Through all the various books of the Bible, through all the various authors and styles of writing, from law to prophecy, poetry, history, through all those different individual stories, there is actually one unified story running through it all. It's the story of God's plan to love you back to himself through Jesus Christ. It's the story we celebrate on Resurrection Day, God redeeming sinful humanity through the sacrifice of his one eternal son so that we could live for him here and now until we die and join him in heaven or Christ returns. So we need to be able to fit all the pieces together to really understand our own faith and to grow our own relationship with Christ. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now, he was talking about the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Endurance, encouragement, hope. That is what the study of scripture brings to your life and to your faith. And who doesn't need more endurance? Who doesn't need more encouragement? Who doesn't need more hope? We all do. And we get those things through a thorough understanding of the Bible and the ability to apply the Bible to situations in our lives. It is human nature to stick with what we already know, the few pieces of the puzzle that we're already comfortable with, because for many, the Bible is just too intimidating. So we avoid the harder passages and books that may require some real mental effort on our part or may require some serious time to dig into what it really means. As committed followers of Christ, we often trumpet the importance of the Bible as the inspired Word of God. One of our favorite puzzle pieces is 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, All Scripture is inspired by God, or God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. By inspired, God breathed, we mean that God had his hand in the writing of the various books of the Bible. Inspired doesn't mean the Bible magically dropped out of the cloud like is claimed in the Book of Mormon, or that God verbally dictated every single word to a scribe who just wrote it down as is claimed for the Quran. Inspired means God used real people and their real life experiences to communicate his eternal truth, exactly as he wanted it written. The Holy Spirit worked through human personality to craft what God wanted written. The Bible is Holy Spirit-inspired, but written through human creativity, human culture, and history. And so we believe all Scripture is inspired, not just the pieces that we like. There are sections of the Bible that are seriously ignored, that don't get much airtime, even in Bible-believing and Bible-preaching congregations. And one of the most neglected parts is the book of Ecclesiastes. Most people have only heard of Ecclesiastes because of the old song by the Birds, the number one single of 1965, because the words were taken directly from chapter three. To everything there is a season. Turn, turn, turn. And those words are used ad nauseum in a lot of bad commencement speeches. But that's it. I can tell you that I never heard anyone preach through the book of Ecclesiastes. I had never preached through Ecclesiastes until a number of years ago. But if we believe that all Scripture is inspired, then we have to take Ecclesiastes seriously because God included it in the canon of Scripture for a reason. To instruct us, to inspire us, and to draw him to himself. There is a reason Ecclesiastes gets ignored. It's not an easy book to read. It is seen as being too gloomy, too pessimistic, too disturbing. It doesn't match up with the positive spirituality that is attractive to people in America today. The challenge is that 21st century conventional wisdom, which is that God is supposed to make us happy. That it's his job to make us happy and successful and healthy and wealthy. But the author of Ecclesiastes gets dismissed as a curmudgeon, a crabby sourpuss. He's not the best-selling author going on the talk show circuit, I can tell you that. He's not going to be the keynote speaker at a motivational seminar. His conferences would not sell out. Because he's a poet of emotional intensity. He's into spiritual realism. And he tells the truth even when the truth is uncomfortable. He asks the hard questions. How can I be sure God exists? What should I do with my life? How does God relate to me? How should I respond? And why is the world so unfair? Why do good people suffer? If God exists, where is he when I need him? Ecclesiastes is a voice that comes in the middle of the night when things get quiet And you can hear your own thoughts. In the after hours, the wee hours, away from deadlines and pat answers, when it's possible to wrestle with the mysteries and the nuances of life. If you want easy answers, don't read Ecclesiastes. He doesn't have any. He goes against the grain. He talks about the ways of God in a hard world. He is honest about the various moods of the spiritual life and tries to find balance between hopelessness and a naive optimism. And that's why I'm calling this series, Singing the Blues, and why I consider Ecclesiastes to be perhaps the truest book of the Bible. So let me read first 11 verses of chapter 1 as we preview the book of Ecclesiastes today. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaninglessness, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time, and no one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. The name Ecclesiastes is a mouthful. The Hebrew name is Kohela. Ecclesiastes is the Greek version of that word, and it means teacher or the preacher. It's not technically a person's name, but it means the one who speaks in an assembly or a congregation. The Greek word ekklesia it really means called out ones, but we've used it to be describing the church. So Ecclesiastes means the one who speaks in the church or speaks to the church. The author's identity is not revealed openly, but traditionally it's been assigned to King Solomon because of how the teacher is described in verse 1 as the son of David and the description of his wealth and power throughout the book. Solomon's name never appears in the book, so it might not be him, but I'm kinda 99.9 percent sure it's him. But regardless of the author, the teacher has got a lot on his mind. Ecclesiastes isn't one for small talk. I mean, right away, he just jumps into the deep end of the pool. Few things ever written give such an eloquent expression to the reality of the human struggle to find meaning in life. In some ways, this makes Ecclesiastes the most modern book of the Bible because he's describing our world, a world where, we, where the old certainties have crumbled. The things that he thought he could rely on have abandoned him, and he's floundering. Unable to find his footing, and he's waded too far out into the ocean, And the undercurrents are about to knock him off his feet. His diagnosis of the world in general, and of his life in particular, is one word, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Other translations say useless, futile, empty, or the poetic words of the King James, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is one of his favorite words. He uses this word 38 times throughout the book to describe the sense of weariness about life an emotional and a spiritual exhaustion, an ennui. As one author says, almost 3,000 years ago when Ecclesiastes was written, the world already felt old, used up, and depleted. What has been is what will be. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything is a remix, a rehash of what has been there before. Been there, done that. But as tiresome as life's issues are, They just keep coming back around, resurfacing again and again. Ecclesiastes wants to puncture our collective amnesia on all the important issues of life because it's as though each generation thinks they must be the first ones to ever have to deal with these things. We don't learn from the past. Every new generation thinks they are the first ones ever to discover beer or booze or sex or all the other temptations of life as though they are all something brand new. Nope. These all have been around for a very, very long time in some form. But people keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Generation after generation, and that repetition has worn this teacher out. So Ecclesiastes has a bad case of the blues, the blahs. And what is interesting is that over the last 200 years, his posture as sort of a negative theologian has actually made him fairly popular with gloomy artists and dark poets weary philosophers, writers, agnostics, and atheists who think they found an ally in this teacher. His message about the meaninglessness of life resonates with their own sense of despair. In fact, the first time I ever heard of Ecclesiastes was in college, when I had to read Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises. Most critics think this is Hemingway's best book. It's not my favorite. I I like Hemingway, but not, not that one. Hemingway quotes this passage from Ecclesiastes in the beginning of the novel. And the title comes straight from verse 5. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. That sense of futility fits Hemingway's novel because it's a story of some disillusioned wanderers in post-World War I Europe. The artsy elite crowd who saw their well-ordered Downton Abbey-type world ripped apart by the savage and senseless slaughter of that horrible war. The trench warfare, the mustard gas, the millions of casualties... The world that they thought was just going to get better and better and better because of technology just got sicker and sicker instead. The French philosophers of despair like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus quickly came on the heels of World War I, and that sense of disillusionment has really colored our world ever since, through World War II, the radical 60s, and to the confused culture of today. But I don't think the despondent advocates of hopelessness ever really understood the main point of what Ecclesiastes was trying to say. I don't think they read the whole book. I don't think they put the whole puzzle together. The people who only see despair and meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes are those who are content to hold on to their few pieces of the puzzle, their few passages from the Bible, without seeing the whole counsel of God. If you stop at verse 11, you're just going to want to go home, go to bed, turn the lights out, and pull the covers over your head. So one important principle for reading and understanding the Bible is that we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We read the Old Testament through the lens or through the filter of the New Testament. As the expression goes, what is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. And so it's important to remember that Ecclesiastes was written long before Jesus was born. Ecclesiastes, in many ways, is anticipating God's action. That's the main point I want you to understand. Ecclesiastes, he's still anticipating God's action. The authors of the Old Testament don't see everything clearly yet, and that's true of Ecclesiastes. He doesn't know how God is going to handle the emptiness of a world infected with sin. All he can do is graphically describe the world as it is and illustrate why the world needs a savior. He graphically describes a world without God's intervention. It's a book of increasing expectation because things are hopeless unless God acts. Things are meaningless unless God acts. In this sense, the book of Ecclesiastes is actually the Bible's most powerful, concentrated expression of why we need Jesus Christ. For when in the Old Testament we hear Ecclesiastes say, with a sense of despair, there is nothing new under the sun, we then must hear Jesus respond, Behold, I make all things new, Revelation 21.5. Jesus answers the sobering questions raised in Ecclesiastes. Jesus actually uses a lot of themes from Ecclesiastes in his teaching, and we'll see that throughout this coming series. So if you remember to hear the words of Jesus as you hear the longing of Ecclesiastes, you will discover that it is one of the most beautiful and challenging books of the Bible, a buried treasure filled with stunning insights and spiritual gifts on every page. I think God is going to surprise you as we work our way through this story. Our world is not for the faint of heart, and neither is Ecclesiastes. Nothing has really changed in 3,000 years except technology and the pace of life. People are essentially the same. Human nature is essentially the same. And here's the main point we're going to get out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's the main puzzle piece that helps us put our puzzled lives together. Apart from a relationship with God, everything is meaningless. For the teacher, God is the ultimate source of awe in the universe. Only faith in the sovereign God can satisfy our deepest longings. There is no hope in anything else because He has tried it all. And that same God invites us today to live in harmony with His will and to live this life fully. God has an answer for the weariness and the brokenness of this world. And we're going to find it in his one and only son, our Savior, Jesus. I hope you're looking forward to the series ahead. God bless you this week. Take care.